Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. There are many things that need to be done in these communities and, and, you know, and many people, uh, whether it be the government or, or nonprofits or, or others, need to play their, their, their role. I'm just focusing on one sliver of it, which I think is an important and catalytic sliver, uh, which is creating more jobs and more economic growth and more places, uh, as, I, as I do think that's one way at least I can contribute to trying to knit together a, a very divided country and giving the country the best possible shot of continuing to be the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world, even as we're seeing the globalization of entrepreneurship. And, uh, and, and uh, it, it, there's reasons to be concerned that maybe this next 250 years won't be as strong as the last 250 years. Uh, but rather than just sit back and, and complain about it or worry about it, I figured I'll do at least my part to do something about it. And for me, that's uh, focused on, uh, on Rise of the Rest. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome to the podcast one of America's, nay, the world's great entrepreneurs, founder of AOL Revolution and Rise of the Rest, and best-selling author of the brand new book, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the American Dream, Steve Case. Welcome, Steve. Andrew, great to be with you. We've been on this journey together for a decade, and it's great to continue the journey, continue the dialogue. Heck yeah, man. Uh, so you and I became friends when we were both on the National Advisory Council for Innovation and Entrepreneurship that you were the chair of. We we're both presidential ambassadors of global entrepreneurship. We hung out in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, when we were both there for a, a, a mayor's summit. And you are singular in American life, in my opinion, as being one of the, uh, the I'm going to use the, the B word, one of the billionaire... <laughs> entrepreneurs who's who's championed cities that really were not hubs for innovation or entrepreneurship or growth companies. And you freaking picked up that banner uh, now about a decade ago when you were leading Startup America. Um, what the heck got you into the revitalizing America business? Well, first of all, when you were saying, you know, talking, I was just thinking, I was at a Rise of the Rest event in D.C., the week you resigned from Venture for America, and we were walking together into the event, and I said, what will you, are you going to do next? And there was a long pause, and you looked at me and said, 
I think I'm going to run for president because I want to <laughs> elevate universal basic income. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. So I think I was one of the first people in the country, other than perhaps your your family, to, to know what you were up to. And, and I give you great credit for jumping into that race and obviously getting a lot of traction and elevating, you know, that, that issue of really trying to deal with a, you know, pretty sig- significant uh, income inequality uh, issue. Uh, so, but going to your, going to your question, uh, I got into this, you know, like many things uh, a little bit by accident. It was not something I was, you know, kind of intending to do. And it goes back to exactly your introduction. When I was asked to lead that National Advisory Council on Innovation Entrepreneurship, I think it was 11 or 12 years ago. Um, uh, I, like most people, were a little skeptical. What is this, you know, kind of going to do? You know, a lot of things in D.C., you know, groups come together, and write reports, and they sit on shelves. And so uh, I, I, I'm sure, like you, was a little skeptical. But we did get some traction. And, and some of the things that we, we focused on, uh, like, you know, trying to get more capital to entrepreneurs, trying to celebrate entrepreneurs, uh, led to things like the White House Startup America effort that President Obama asked me to lead, and then led to things like the Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act, Jobs Act, which passed about you know, 10 years ago. And to me, uh, that whole process and that series of, 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 of things opened my eyes to something that I hadn't fully understood. Number one was that most uh, jobs in this country are created by new companies. Small business is very important. Big business is very important. But new business, companies under five years, is really most important. I didn't uh, fully appreciate that. And I also didn't fully appreciate that uh, venture capital uh, was basically going to a few cities that over the last decade, 75% of venture capital has gone to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. And so when you put those two things together, it doesn't take... You know, you have to be a rocket scientist to say, okay, if most of the new jobs are created by new companies and most of the successful new companies that really create lots and lots of jobs do raise venture capital, but venture capital is overwhelmingly just going to a few states, you know, we have a problem here. And how do we address that? How do we level the playing field? How do we create more companies in more places that can create more jobs in more places? And so that led this to launched the Rise Rest bus tours eight years ago. We did a series of those you know, tours, visited you know, 40, 44 cities. That led us about five years ago to take the next step of, of launching the Rise Rest Fund to back entrepreneurs. So far, we've backed 200 uh, companies in 100 different uh, cities. Uh, and that led more recently to writing this book because after spending this decade traveling the country, I thought the stories of these entrepreneurs were remarkable. The renewal of these cities was 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 uh, both surprising and gratifying. And I didn't think it was a story that was told. Uh, most people do yep, not realize right. what's happening in all these different cities. So that's a long answer to a short question, but that's how we got to now. I mean, you say it so casually, man, but that's 10 years of your life. <laughs> it's 10 years of work. So It's been fun. It's been fun. So you grew up, I want to say in Hawaii, uh, I believe you went to the same high school that Barack Obama did, but then you also spent some time in the Midwest. You live in the Virginia area now. So you're kind of, uh, I suppose, from uh, different parts of America that have given you a different perspective. You're the chair of the Smithsonian, I believe, which might be the most yeah. American institution that, that, that there is. Uh, where do you think you got this affinity for trying to uh, have opportunities arise in different places? 
Well, it's a good question. I've, I've reflected on that even even writing the book. And you're right. I did grow up in, in Hawaii. My parents both were born and raised in Hawaii. So our family goes back there over uh, 100 years. Uh, I did go to uh, you know, high school with uh, President Obama. I was actually a senior when he was a freshman. So we didn't have classes together. But I do remember playing basketball with him. Did you haze him? Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. And I would say uh, everybody in the school uh, probably had at best modest expectations, how we would both turn out. So I think we were positive surprises uh, in terms of of what ended up happening. Me too, for what it's worth. (laughs) (laughs) No one, no one marked the club. People people with, with low expectations and, and, you know, would not have made the most likely to succeed list by anybody in in high school. Uh, So when I graduated from, uh, I did go to college in, in Massachusetts and then my first job out of college uh, was in Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then my second job was for Pizza Hut in Wichita, Kansas, where I was a director of new pizza development at the time. It was owned by PepsiCo. And then after a little bit of time there, I moved to the, the northern Virginia area outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, to join a startup that was doing something that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, but that company failed. Um, so I was kind of welcome to the world of startups. Sometimes they work up and they don't, but thankfully two of the people I met, uh, and I ended up starting America online AOL in, in, uh, in 1985. And that was certainly the early days of the internet. Then only 3% of people were online. They're only on an hour a week. Um, and for a decade or so, uh, you know, the skepticism about whether the internet would ever amount to anything was pretty, pretty strong. But eventually after about 10 years, we kind of, we kind of broke through. I do think some of that your question, some of my experience growing up in a place like Hawaii, living in places like you know Ohio and, and Kansas and, and then Virginia uh, helped uh, give me a sense of these places and appreciation for these places, but also recognizing some of the challenges in those places. And also starting uh, and scaling uh, AOL in Northern Virginia, uh, I think at the time there was no venture capital in, in Northern Virginia. There were not really any startups in, in Northern Virginia. It was really a government you know, town because it was outside of you know, Washington DC. And so it was a struggle to raise you know, capital. It was a struggle to hire people. It was a struggle to get people to believe in us and pay attention to us. I think that also helps inform uh, you know, my thinking. So that backstory combined with what I mentioned before, you know, my eyes being opened a decade ago to some of the both the problems we had, but some of the opportunities we have, uh, I, I think kind of led me on this path to say, well, uh, I do have, you know, the ability to, you know, thankfully to kind of have, be a change agent, uh, rather than enter politics like you did. I want to focus on policy. You're, in a you're wise, my friend. You're way. wise. Things, things, <laughs> things, like, things like the Jobs Act. And, and, Gene is and, grateful. Uh, and I also want to do what I can to, to, to try to level the playing field so the people and places that do feel left behind have more of a shot and the communities all across the country can start creating jobs and being part of the future. And so that that's why I'm so passionate about this work. And that led me to write the book to, to share some of these, these stories. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched 
with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, you and I intersected around 2011, 2012. So I start Venture for America in some ways from uh, the opposite end, which is uh, the talent spectrum, that there was this brain drain out of the Midwest and the South to the coasts, uh, Wall Street consulting um, law and eventually tech. Um, And so I thought, look, we should create a pathway for enterprising uh, aspiring entrepreneurs to be able to link up with startups in Detroit, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Baltimore, New Orleans, Birmingham. Um, so I, I started it in 2011. Uh, it was around the same time you were turning your sites this way. One reason why I admire right. you so much is that I uh, did that work for six and a half years. Uh, and um, reading your book was such a joy because I actually know a lot of the people, know a lot of the characters. It's <laughs> like you, you had, I got to see some of the companies actually take flight over the, the last um, five or six years. And, and uh, one of the things you say in your book, which I thought was very, very powerful, you said two things. I'll, I'll present them both to you. Um, one you said is that, look, government uh, has a role to play, but it can't be government that rejuvenates uh, a lot of these communities. Like there, there are other things that have to be done. Um, and then the, the second thing you say is that um, that the lack of growth and opportunity in different parts of the country is driving disunity. Now, these are both things that I, I agree with. And uh, I wanted to just unpack either or both with you where I, I totally agree with you that the government, um, even though I'm now, you know, something of a, a political guy, like I don't think the government can do it all and that there are uh, all these other pieces to the puzzle. So like, what do you see as the primary engines outside of government? Well, first of all, I... I, I I do. And I talk about some of this in the book. I do think there is a role for government, both at the national level yeah. and more of the, the the local level. And so things like the Jobs Act 10 years ago makes sense. Things like the, as part of the Chips and Science Act, uh, you're kind of authorizing $10 billion of funding for regional hubs makes sense. Things like in the uh, in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, some funding around climate technologies to, to accelerate the investment in, in, in sort of the sustainability, I think, uh, makes sense trying to hopefully soon, you know, get immigration reform so we can continue to win what's now a global battle for talent makes sense. And then at more of a a state and and local level, having governors focus less on economic development as being an effort to lure big companies to move their headquarters or open a factory and more on launching new companies someday, some of which can become big companies makes sense. And having mayors really focus on and celebrate what entrepreneurs are doing 
uh, you know, makes sense. So there are a lot of things that, that, that the government can and should do to kind of set the table, kind of set the ground rules, you know, create a fertile environment for innovation and entrepreneurship to flourish everywhere. But uh, ultimately, it does come down to the entrepreneur with the idea. Ultimately, it does come down to investors, you know, backing uh, and supporting that. And that's where the work you were doing with uh, with VFA on the on the talent side and what we've been doing on the on the capital side are critically important. And as you know, completely you know, linked that part of the reason totally. there has been a brain yeah. drain and people growing up in different parts of the country, even going to some of our great universities in, in Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania or other places, and then leaving those places to go to places like Silicon Valley is because there wasn't much opportunity there. And some of that was because uh, there wasn't much investment capital, you know, kind of there. So if you can you know, create more of a sense of possibility and, and have more capital, uh, that should slow the brain drain of people leaving and create a boomerang of people returning. And there are a couple of things that have happened in the last decade that I think are super encouraging. We did a report with PitchBook last year, and in the last decade, 1,400 new venture firms have started in Rise of the Rest Cities, meaning outside yeah, of San Francisco, outside of New York, outside of 1,400. So now there are venture firms in many places that didn't exist a, a decade ago. And there is a six-fold increase in investment dollars going to these rise of rest cities. So we were making progress and we had made steady progress in the last each of the years in the last decade. But clearly the pandemic was a tipping point, an accelerant in terms of more people uh, deciding to move to other places, investors who yep. can suddenly look at meet entrepreneurs via pitch meetings, being able to, you know, to do that. So we're now trying to capitalize on that. I think this next five or 10 years, people are going to be really surprised by how many significant companies, some of which I, you know, dozens of which actually I profile in the book are going to launch yep. and scale in places that, that are going to surprise people and going to create lots of jobs in Detroit. I know you're passionate about Detroit. I was there last week, two companies we backed there, Shinola and StockX, neither existed 10 years ago. Both now have a, more than a thousand employees in Detroit, which just shows you what awesome. both are, are, have significant valuation. So it shows you this is possible. It, it really is working. We just need to be intentional about not just backing the same kind of people in the same kind of places. Well, you've put your money where your mouth is, uh, Steve, where the Rise of the Rest Fund, I believe it's $150 million. You've been investing in dozens of these companies, maybe hundreds. And I'm going to share a story for everyone that's good fun. Um, so people listening to this probably know the uh, healthy food chain Sweet Greens, in which you're an investor. Um, one of the meetings we had, you hosted us in a Sweet Greens for dinner. And they're... Yeah, and, and, and it was like a fancy sweet greens meal, which was delightful. And I think we even had a little Shinola gift for us at the tables. And Correct. I have a Shinola watch. Shinola was right next my, door. Body right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was um, you know, it was your vision come to life. Uh, and, and that's one reason I, I admire you so much is that, you know, like you don't talk about stuff. You actually just go out and do it. Uh, and what you're trying to do is cultivate the next generation of doers around the country. Your last book, The Third Wave, talked about how you thought the biggest opportunities were going to be this union between mature uh, industries or maybe upstarts in those industries like agriculture or mm. logistics, as you detail in this book. And, and then technology was going to wind up uh, being the enabler, um, which made sense to me um, as someone who spent a lot of time in these environments, because each of these cities typically has some kind of industrial base that throws off expertise uh, that is distinct to that community. 
Yeah, totally agree. And um, uh, first of all, the funds, we've now done two funds, uh, $250 million funds, so $300 million total. We've backed 200 companies in 100 cities. And I did put my money where my mouth is because I anchor each of those funds. But I also want to point out that we got several dozen other individuals who are prominent entrepreneurs and investors to join us on this. So some of our investors uh, in, in the Rise of Rest Fund include Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and Sarah Blakely and and Tory Birch and and venture investors like John Doerr and Jim Breyer and private equity folks like Henry Kravis and David Rubenstein, hedge fund people like Ray Dalio and families around the country, including the Walton family, the Koch family. A lot of people have joined us on this. So I want to make make it clear that this isn't just about me. It's a, a team of people that's trying to identify promising entrepreneurs and back them in the in these uh, rise of the rest uh, you know kind of uh, cities. But you're totally right. This issue of expertise, domain expertise about particular sectors, I think is underappreciated in terms of what I think will happen in this next you know, decade of, of innovation. As you know, these rise of rest cities, there's some advantages they have, cost of living is lower, cost of operations lower. If you're able to raise a million dollars, it might go two or three times further than if you're in San Francisco or New York. So those are advantages. There are also some lifestyle advantages in many of these cities, you know, amenities that, 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 that people like, some for some family dynamics that are encouraging, yeah. for some tax you know, incentives are, are might be a, a, a factor. But perhaps the biggest factor is exactly what you said, the strategic value of being in that city. And that was different than what we've seen in the last decade. I'll just give you, you know, a couple examples. There's a company we backed in Chattanooga, Tennessee, called Freight Waves, that's building, built a platform kind of like Bloomberg for the trucking and logistics industry. Yeah. I didn't know this till we were there with our Rise Rest bus, but some of the biggest trucking companies in the country are headquartered in Chattanooga. So if you're building <laughs> Bloomberg for trucking, better to be in Chattanooga than to be in Manhattan or, or Silicon Valley. Another one that is interesting is a company called Acre Trader in Northwest Arkansas, in Fayetteville. Now, the founder of that company, Carter Malloy, actually was in San Francisco working for a hedge fund in San Francisco when he came up with the idea of Acre Trader, which is a platform to allow people to invest in farmland. Uh, he decided he'd be better off being in Arkansas, closer to the farmers, in order to convince farmers to put their farms on his platform. And so he moved there and it scaled quite quite significantly. And again, he thought an advantage should be in Arkansas as opposed to be in, in, uh, in, in California. So there are more and more of these examples of, of, of entrepreneurs who are really leveraging what's unique about their city, unique about their, their region to build companies that are going to be advantaged because they're there, as opposed to what has been historic, which is kind of disadvantaged because they're not in Silicon Valley. They don't have access to capital. They don't have access to the, the talent. And that's why I think this rise of the rest phenomenon is going to really accelerate over the next decade. And that's why I wrote the book. I really wanted people to be aware of what's happening and have a sense of where the puck was going. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. 
That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. Reading about these companies was a lot of fun. Some of them uplifting and invigorating. Uh, I loved the stories of uh, 75F, which is trying to keep office buildings a certain temperature, which, by the way, is incredibly good for uh, energy efficiency and the climate. I think commercial buildings are the fourth biggest uh, emitters (laughs) or consumers of energy. So if you could eliminate the waste, it's incredible. Uh, App Harvest, which I believe was an indoor farming company that's based in Kentucky, where they're experiencing job loss from coal miners. And you make the correct observation that, look, when someone talks about retraining in these environments, there is the open question, retrain for what? Retrain for which employer? Because when you you go to those communities, they used to have one employer, let's say a coal mine. And then if you say, hey, guys, great, great news. We're going to give you certificates in some something else, they'll look around and be like, what am I going to do with this certificate? Um, so that the fact that a company like App Harvest actually is making uh, a farm that can produce, what was it, 20, 30 times as much food uh, as uh, that that area of Square? Yeah, Jonathan Webb started this company just five or six years ago, and we were the initial seed investor. It's now scaled up. It's actually a, a public company. Uh, and he's created more than 500 jobs in in this area outside of Lexington, you know, Kentucky. That, as you said, really has struggled for the last several decades with you know kind of the decline of the coal industry. Everybody knows about some of the challenges in, in that area known as Appalachia. So he's done a great job doing it. And part of his idea was we need to create healthier uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, and so that the, the indoor greenhouse, now the largest indoor greenhouse in the country. Uh, allows you to do that. He, and also he saw an advantage to be in Kentucky because 70% of the U.S. population is within a 24-hour drive of, of where they are. So they can get those fruits and vegetables to, to the markets more, more, more quickly than if they're on uh, one of the coasts. And also from a sustainability standpoint, it uses 90% less water. So it's good to kind of in all respects. And he took that idea and, and ran with it. And that's an example of a, a Rise Rest company launching in a place that most people don't think startups launch, scaling to create significant jobs. And as you say, not just jobs for coders, but jobs for all kinds of, of people. And some of the other ones I mentioned before, like uh, you know, StockX uh, or Shinola, similarly, have retrained auto workers to be working in, in, in their jobs, either manufacturing of things like watches in the case of Shinola 
or doing the authentication that StockX does when when people use their platform to you know to buy and sell goods, sneakers, and other kinds of goods. They need to be authenticated so they get sent to Detroit, and that's why they have fifteen hundred employees now for StockX uh, when it was you know essentially zero when the you know when the company started five six years ago. And those are jobs in Detroit. I remember when Greg was just hanging out at his uh, yeah they they didn't have many employees when I went through. <laughs> so so hearing about it, I'm like yeah I, I phenomenal. I was visiting Dan Gilbert uh, at the time. Uh, we were talking about a bunch of things uh, in Detroit. And he said, I want to take you downstairs to sh- you know, show you the StockX thing. And uh, we actually went to the basement of his building. And it was Greg and like a half a dozen other people just trying to figure out you know, what, what to build here. And a couple of years, I went back and they had a, you know, a, a, their own building. And, and now, as I said, they have 1,500 employees, a you know, multi-billion dollar you know, kind of valuation. So it's been a great investment for us. Uh, you know, probably close to 100x return so far, uh, but also been a really positive contributor in terms of, of Detroit and one of the many companies that's really helping to renew and revitalize uh, Detroit. So it's a it's a great example of of, of the rise of the rest. So th- when I started Venture for America, I was concerned about uh, brain drain and also what was going on with the culture. And I think you hit on something in, in your book, which was is to me in some ways the most important struggle. That's going on is that when uh, that entrepreneur who started App Harvest, Jonathan, was talking to high schoolers in Kentucky, and he's trying to get them excited about environments in their area, excited about the possibility, um, there's this sense of optimism and can-do spirit that animates most entrepreneurs. uh, And you characterize it as the American spirit, which it certainly has been for a long time. But there is this sense that that spirit uh, may or may not be the same as it was. Like there's this kind of creeping pessimism. Um, And uh, your approach to trying to remedy that is to try and invest real money in real companies uh, around the country to show people that these things can be built, which by the way, I see as a very top-notch approach (laughs) to try to rebuild the spirit of optimism and entrepreneurship. But do you sense the same things I do? Are you concerned that the, the can-do spirit of uh, America like uh, is wavering or is being challenged? No, I, I share the concern. And I think we have, you know, unfortunately, and you know it well, uh, kind of created this two Americas where there's some people in some places that are doing really well and excited by what's happening and, and kind of leaning into the future with great you know, confidence and optimism and many people, indeed most people, uh, struggling and feeling left out and left behind, and that clearly has played out, as you saw firsthand, and even in our in our politics. Uh, so I understand that, and I also understand there's many facets to it. Uh, but you know, our decision was to focus on one facet of it, which is trying to close this opportunity gap, trying to create more of a, a, a momentum. Uh, in these communities, more hope in these communities, in part by creating more jobs in these communities and driving more economic growth in in these communities, and and by doing that by backing new companies, backing entrepreneurs, backing backing startups, and as as you mentioned, uh, and you know we profiled I think it's thirty cities, more than forty companies in this book. It's it's not just the usual tech companies. Are, are these tech enabled? you know, innovations across many different uh, industry uh, sectors. And many of these companies are, of course, creating some management jobs and some 
technology jobs, but also a lot of other jobs. Uh, and you know and that's why you know, companies like App Harvest have 500 people. Why companies like uh, you know, StockX have 1,500 people, and, and and reversing that sense where the companies were in decline, the jobs were in decline, unemployment was going up. You know, good-paying jobs you know were, were going down. You know, government maybe can play a role. Certainly can play part of a role there. But ultimately, I do believe it's. It's the private sector, particularly the entrepreneurs, stepping up and starting companies in these places that create jobs and hope and opportunity in these places. And it's also worth pointing out for your for your your listeners, you already know this, but it's not just about the jobs within these startups, within these new companies. There's a ripple effect across the community. For every yep. startup job, there's five other jobs in the community, people building houses, people working in restaurants, all kinds of, of, of other jobs are created when you have a rising community. Conversely, when you have a declining community, you lose all those jobs. And that's why yep. Detroit went from being the leading innovation city a century ago to over 50 years, last 50 years, losing 60 percent of its population and then going bankrupt. It went from being this magnet for talent and creating the auto industry and all the related supply chain companies and then also creating the other related jobs in, the, in those communities. And then suddenly when things reversed, it went into kind of kind of free fall. So the reason Detroit is back and what's happening versus when you and I were first there a decade ago, the momentum in downtown Detroit is quite palpable. The buildings that were mostly empty a decade ago are now mostly full. Actually, they're cranes building new buildings to house some of the new companies that have been launched. That is creating more opportunity in those in a city like Detroit. And we're seeing this in the dozens of other cities that we've we visited and invested in with uh, with Rise of Rest. So it does give me an optimistic view of America. I understand the problems. I understand the challenges. I understand why so many people are angry, frustrated, left out, left behind. But but I think part of the answer has to be creating the opportunities, leading with new companies, leading with the industries of the future, not just doing that in a few places like, you know, Silicon Valley or New York City, doing that all across the country. I'm super excited by what we've seen just in the last few years. It feels like the momentum is building and things are really going to accelerate over the over the next years. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Oh, yeah. You seem prescient now, man, because uh, I feel like talent has spread out and gone to all sorts of places that you've been uh, championing or investing in <laughs> for, for, for years. So the the moment is definitely uh, ar- arriving. A couple of chapters in your book are about uh, the nature of entrepreneurs, where when you showed up in these cities initially, and I, by the way, I showed up in a lot of the same cities, and we both had the same experience, which is if you had a table of entrepreneurs, they were mostly white dudes. Right. <laughs> so then you, you're like, hey, we should try try and broaden this out and and, and change this up. Um, and we so we we both know that there are multiple obstacles for uh, entrepreneurs from different backgrounds who are not, uh, let's say. Uh, white men. Um, if you are a woman, 
you have lower access to mentors, often lower access to seed capital and angel investors, uh, the odds of your being invested in by a venture capitalist. What, what, are, what are the numbers on that? You, you must know the, the No, they're pretty, they're percentage. pretty bad. The, 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 if you look at uh, a shift from place in the, in the city that we've been talking about to people, here's the three statistics that you know, should get your attention. Number one, women are 50% of the population. Female founders get less than 10% of venture capital. Uh, number that two, number. Latinos are 19% of the population. They get less than 2% of venture capital. And black Americans are 13% of the population. And they get less than 1% of venture capital. So this is not just a problem around place with most of the capital going to places like you know, California, New York, and Massachusetts. It's also about people. So we really need to level the playing field for people place and for people and make sure everybody who has an idea has a fair shot at creating a company, a fair shot, frankly, at, at the American dream. And, and what we've been doing in these cities is be intentional as we, you know, as we come to the cities and trying to reach out, uh, understand the different aspects going on in each community and make sure we're, we're connecting with a diverse mix of founders. Even when we do pitch competitions in the city, we have a, a, a diverse mix of entrepreneurs pitching on stage. As a result of that intentionality, more than 40% of the investments we've made, I mentioned earlier, 200 investments to date, are female founders or founders of color, which still isn't wow. what it should be, but it's quite a bit more than you see with, with traditional you know, venture funds. And there really are terrific entrepreneurs in these cities, terrific entrepreneurs who come from different different backgrounds, that, you know, do have different uh, perspectives that can imagine better ways to do things, which is, you know, all entrepreneurs do is see a problem and turn it into an opportunity. And you're more likely to see a problem based on your the life you live. And that gives certain people advantages. Uh, but we, we have to supplement that insight they have with the access to capital, mentorship, all the things you just mentioned, so they can take those ideas and run with them. And we can create a more inclusive innovation economy in this country, not just in terms of cities, but also in terms of people. Yeah, I, I think that's one reason why there's a, a sense that I have. And so uh, fun fun anecdote, maybe. So you and I are presidential ambassadors of global entrepreneurship um, in the White House. And I'm watching HBO a number of weeks or months ago. And then a picture of you and me pops up, but it's not about you and me. It's because uh, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos is also in the picture, and it's and, and it's the documentary about her. I don't Whoops. know if you, you had this Whoops. experience. I did not see that. <laughs> yeah. So it, anyway, if you watch a documentary, Steve, like you and I make a very brief cameo because they have like the, 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 the White House no picture. guilt by association. No, no. I mean, you know, it was a blink and you miss it for for us. Um, but I mean, that passage of the documentary was about how Elizabeth Holmes was getting uh, anointed and uh, and blessed and praised. And then meanwhile, she was uh, pulling the fast one. Um, and that that's not the only major movie about, I suppose, like the uh, excesses of a particular entrepreneur. Uh, there is We Crashed about WeWork. There is uh, the one about uh, Uber and Travis Kalanick. Um, even a, a number of years ago when you and I were, were uh, working around the country, I think um, people viewed Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook differently than they do now. Like there, there, yep. there were a, there are a bunch of things that have kind of turned culturally. And I think part of it is because of what you and I just described a, as well, which is uh, a lot of the, the figures, I mean, Elizabeth Holmes is a, a woman, obviously, but a lot of the figures are uh, white men. And there is like a, um, a sense that, that the excesses of entrepreneurship are something to be uh, guarded against, which I'm sure you and I agree with. But to me, entrepreneurship uh, like has 
you know, a hundred times more good than not good baked into it. <laughs> like, like it's, it's people right. trying to go out and solve problems. And I uh, felt like that's the way people saw entrepreneurship X years ago. But then there's been this cultural treatment over this last number of years that, that seems to be more dubious. Uh, I, I don't know if you've picked up on any of that or whether, Maybe you don't watch the same TV I do. <laughs> I don't know no, if you I have think that there's sense. Definitely, there's definitely some of that. I think some of it is, uh, while people in this country generally have celebrated the work of the pioneers that, that you know kind of that create new products, services, companies, and and therefore you know kind of celebrate entrepreneurs. Uh, lately, there has been a backlash. I think some of it is over this wealth gap uh, that some of these you know people being worth tens of billions, or in some cases, even several hundred billion dollars just doesn't seem right. And also some of the innovations have, you know, taken a turn that concerned people. You mentioned, you know, Facebook, social media. I was a pioneer in that 35 years ago when we launched America Online. It was really first and foremost about community, chat rooms, instant messaging, things like that. And I always believed that one of the great opportunities for the internet was to, you know, kind of level the playing field in terms of access to information and ideas, you know, commerce, other people, et cetera. But, uh, and, and, and things that have continued since then, like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, I think have largely been positives, but there's been a negative. There's been an unintended consequence, including the way some of the algorithms are used, which do, do help tend to elevate, you know, the, some of the, you know, the, you know, angry voices and, and, uh, and also, uh, there's concerns about how social media kind of works and how people both on the internet and with cable television kind of live in their own filter bubbles, don't really get exposed to the other side of issues. Yeah. Information silos that for reinforce sure. their own views. You know, the silos, so that that's been a you know, unfortunate you know, part of it. So I think that's all led to, uh, a backlash against, uh, you know, some entrepreneurs, a backlash against uh, technology, kind of a backlash against Silicon Valley, which doesn't really surprise me. Actually, you mentioned my previous book, The Third Wave, six years ago. I predicted there would be a backlash against uh, Silicon Valley. I could see it. I could see it brewing. But what's happened in the last couple of years has been more than I would have uh, expected. Again, I, I, I go back to what we talked about earlier. I think one way to address that is to recognize that part of the reason people are mad is because those entrepreneurs in places like Silicon Valley are creating these disruptive technologies that might be celebrated in Silicon Valley, but often mean job loss in their own community, in their own family. The technologies that drive productivity. Yeah, or, if, if you're a random manufacturing worker in Michigan, you don't feel like you're benefiting exactly. from that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah the, 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 yeah. the robotics company that that's getting this big valuation and making the entrepreneur rich doesn't seem like it's helpful to you. So of course there's going to be a, a backlash. And, and the way I look at it is there's always going to be this march of technology. This, this it's it a hundred years ago, 90% of us worked on farms. Now it's 2%. Because technology basically allowed you to grow more food with fewer people. That's actually a good thing if you want to feed the world. It was a bad thing for people working on farms. But thankfully, we were smart enough to retrain those people on farms to work in factories. And the industrial revolution took over from the agricultural revolution. But as you know, it's what you've written about, it's even why you ran for president. The transition from the industrial revolution to the digital revolution has not been as smooth. And that has dislocated uh, a lot of you know, a lot of people and hurt a lot of uh, communities. So again, there's many facets to that. 
the one I chose to focus on was, well, how do we reverse that? Instead of job loss in communities, how do we create job growth in communities? And the only way to do it, in my opinion, the only sustainable way to do it is to back new companies, some of which will fail, but some of which will end up being the Fortune 500 companies of tomorrow. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Yeah, thank goodness you are who you are doing what you're doing, Steve, uh, because there's no one else doing what you're doing. I mean, it's funny, like you and I have been on uh, these parallel journeys over the last decade or so. And then circa 2017, I I, <laughs> I said, you know what? So Trump yeah. wins. Yeah. I mean, you've been, you and I have been working in these communities for years. And when Trump wins, I was like, whoa, like, you know, that this was a red flag for me. Um, and, and I felt like I, I had an inkling as to why it was happening because uh, the opportunities were slipping away in, in so many parts of the country. And so then I went off in my direction and then you uh, got on the bus and went these communities uh, and uplifted entrepreneurs and invested in them and did all these things. It's what, one reason it was so yeah, much. We both genuine. got on buses. You, you got on the bus, the bus in Iowa and New Hampshire running for president. I got on the bus trying to meet entrepreneurs all across the country. So we both both hit the hit the road on, on, on buses, but approaching it from a different different lens and vantage point. Yeah, th- thank you for for that. Um, I did have a bus in Iowa, and that that was the only time in the campaign my kids thought I was cool. <laughs> they had to come on a bus. They're like, "Dad has a bus." But yeah, so we went down these parallel tracks. Reading a, uh, your book gave me some, uh, at least, glimpse into into your last five years. What are you um, most excited about? Most concerned about moving forward? You're on your second Rise of the Rest fund. You've cataloged all these awesome entrepreneurs. Um, like, what what do you feel like is the next challenge? Because you are the quintessential entrepreneur, where you're just going to keep on building, growing, discovering, learning, uh, and innovating. Well, you're kind to say that. Uh, the way I think about it is goes back to what I said earlier about uh, my experience with AOL and the internet. The first decade was hard. You know, we dealt with a lot of skepticism. A couple of times we almost hit the wall, we had to go through layoffs because we were running out of money. Uh, most people didn't believe in the idea of the internet. Seems crazy now, but back then people would say, you know, why do you think people are going to get on the internet? And, you know, why do you think people are going to use email when they can just pick up the phone and call somebody? Why do you think somebody's going to use e-commerce? Do you really think they're going to trust putting their credit card into the internet? I mean, there was all kinds of skepticism. And that continued for a decade and that, you know, made it a, you know, a difficult first decade. And then suddenly they hit a tipping point in the next decade. It went from an idea that nobody knew or cared about to everybody needed to get connected. That's when AOL went from a little company to a big company and evaluation when we went public 
1992 as the first internet company to go public with $70 million. Eight years later, it was $160 billion, the best performing stock of the decade. So to me, that was a reminder that sometimes revolutions happen in evolutionary ways. And sometimes if you persist, uh, eventually you hit a tipping point. And I felt that in retrospect with the internet, first 10 years were hard. The second 10 years, things accelerated. I feel the same way about the rise of the rest. I've been at this for a decade, as you mentioned. It's, you know, it's been a hard decade building out the foundation, trying to get people to believe in, 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 in the idea of, of backing more people in more places. Uh, I think this next decade is when we really slam down the accelerator and accelerate backing more of these entrepreneurs and more of these places where we join with some of the coastal investors to, to, to back these these companies. And I think that's partly because uh, people, investors now have their eyes more open to the opportunity to make money by backing these entrepreneurs in these places. And it's helped along by some, some policy I mentioned before, including the, the legislation that just passed Congress this last few months that's going to result in more of a focus on place-based strategy. Even Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, a few weeks ago talked about you know, the need for place-based strategy, essentially the same things we've been saying as it relates to uh, to rise the rest. So we've made some progress in, in this last decade, but I think the real work is ahead. So we'll keep you know doubling down, trying to figure out ways to kind of extend our, 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 our reach, extend our network, uh, back more people, more places, get more capitalist people, slow the brain drain of people leaving, accelerate the boomerang of people returning, do what we can to create more communities that are open to uh, to, to supporting entrepreneurs and, 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 and not, you know, not focused on the status quo, trying to lean into the future. That's my way, I think, of, of trying to contribute uh, to this country by trying to do what I can to, to, from the prism of being an investor and, and, and maybe a, a private sector evangelist and occasionally a policy kibitzer uh, to try to have some, uh, you know, some, some impact. And oh, by the way, we, we started this conversation by talking about us both being on NACI, the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. I'm back doing that again. You know, when Gina Raimondo <laughs> became back. Treasury Secretary, she she asked for you know several recommendations of what to do, and one of them was focused on more regional expansion. So the regional hubs are part of that, and the other was to restart uh, that NACI you know, kind of group, uh, which had uh, had kind of. Uh, died during the Trump administration. So she agreed to restart it. But the deal was I had to chair it again. So I'm now co-chairing. That's what that, happened, Steve. Uh, you you suggested the they, president they, of the they, Ohio they, State <laughs> University. Exactly. Be careful what you suggest. But I'm back in there focusing on on uh, on some of the key priorities of the country from an innovation perspective, including making sure this regional hub investment goes well, including trying to make sure we're doubling down as a country on some of the industries of, of, of the future. So, you know, a little bit of policy, continued focus on philanthropy, including the, the work you mentioned as chair of the Smithsonian. But most of my focus is on expanding you know, revolution, trying to help the rest rise, trying to help entrepreneurs navigate some of the policy challenges, which I think are going to create opportunities in a lot of sectors in, in this, you know, this coming decade. Thank goodness for you, Steve, putting in 10 years of work and then saying like, hey, now we're going to reap some some rewards over the next 10 years. Most people don't think in, in those time frames, uh, but but that's the way you operate. And you're changing the lives not just of these entrepreneurs and the people that they'll employ and the 5X people that will be positively impacted because they'll have jobs in their communities. But you are rekindling the spirit of entrepreneurship in communities that need it, uh, some of which may have lost it. Uh, and you say in your book that you think that's one of the paths to unity. And I couldn't agree more. If you had a prosperous 
culture and way of life in more parts of the country, then instead of being uh, subject to, you know, I fighting and blaming, you'd actually look up and say, okay, what are the real problems and how can we solve them? I agree. I agree. Again, I'm not saying it's the the magic bullet. There are many things that need to be done in these communities and and, and many people, uh, whether it be the government or or nonprofits or or others need to play their, their, their role. Even the rebirth of Detroit, I mentioned what we've done from an investment standpoint, which I think has been helpful. I mentioned what you know, Dan Gilbert did in terms of really going all in on investing in Detroit, uh, which has been super helpful. Uh, also, the, the the leadership of, of foundations like the Kresge Foundation was catalytic. The leadership of the governor and the mayor was catalytic. It required everybody to do their part. I'm just focusing on one sliver of it, which I think is an important and catalytic sliver, uh, which is creating more jobs and more economic growth in more places uh, as, as I do think that's one way at least I can contribute to trying to knit together a, a very divided country and giving the country a, the best possible shot of continuing to be the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world, even as we're seeing the globalization of entrepreneurship. And, uh, and, and uh, it, it, there's reasons to be concerned that maybe this next 250 years won't be as strong as the last 250 years. Uh, but rather than just sit back and, and complain about it or worry about it, I figured I'll do at least my part to do something about it. And for me, that's uh, focused on uh, on Rise of the Rest. Well, you're doing more than just about anyone. And, and you say in your book as a, a fitting capstone, uh, America's 250th birthday is going to be in 2026. And are we going to be celebrating in style uh, or are we not? <laughs> no, we got to be. We, let's stay optimistic, Andrew. Stay optimistic. No, I, I've been working on that. I start the book with that reference and end the book with that reference because uh, I, I'm partly pulled into that because I am the chair of the Smithsonian. We have you know, 19 museums on the National Mall, Air and Space, American History, Natural History, and so forth. Uh, and I was at the 200th birthday of the country when I was still a teenager. That's when the Air and Space Museum opened. Uh, in, uh, in, in uh, 1976. Um, and I remember it. And so I want to make sure the 250th uh, is equally memorable for the, the teenagers who might <laughs> be there in, in, in four years and is, a, is an opportunity for the Smithsonian to lead in the future and, and you know, you know, reach more people in more places. And we have a whole strategy, virtual Smithsonian strategy around trying to be in every home and every classroom. And also we use this 250th birthday as an opportunity to renew that spirit, that can-do pioneering you know, you know, kind of spirit that's made America, America. And so that's, that's, uh, you know, what I'll you know, work on towards uh, that anniversary in, in, in four years. And, and some of that obviously ties in with what we've been talking about here with, with rise rest. Hopefully we have at least a little bit more inclusive innovation economy when we turn 250 and we're on the path to really help more people and more places be part of the future and really live the American dream. 250 years young. That sounds like a party. I got to be there. Congratulations, Steve, on your work first and foremost, but on a great book, Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Uh, Entrepreneurs need a champion and you are one of the or the very best that America has. Thank you very, very much, my friend, for everything you do. Please say hey to Gene uh, and the team for me. I will do that. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about the the book and for all you've done over the past decade and look forward to continuing to work with you as we both do our part to make sure that this next chapter for America is a bright one.
Yeah, man, let's race towards this uh, 2026 celebration. I'll, 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 I'll see you there. It sounds I'll like see it's going to be in the then. Hopefully, hopefully I'll see you before then. Yeah, hopefully I'll see you before then. Thanks so much, Steve. All right, thanks. Thanks.